On this episode of Three Beers, Two Guys, One Movie Podcast, we are joined by special guest, Mr. Budge Husky, and he's here to tell you a little bit how you can contribute to the committee to memorialize the legacy of John Lewis. Then we give our marquee picks for our favorite government employees. We talk about Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, and then we spin the wheel. So, let's go. Beers, two guys, one movie podcast, the always fun, the always entertaining, the always slightly buzz movie review show. Tonight, we are doing Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, and as always, I'm joined by Mr. Joseph Fine, Mr. Preston Pokey Barnes, and we have a special guest tonight, Mr. Budge Husky from Washington, D.C. He's sort of a historian himself, and he has a special expertise in this movie. He's read the book. He's seen the movie tons and tons of times. He's going to be the perfect guest. So uh, before we get into the movie, we always like to ask our listeners to please go on iTunes and rate our podcast. If you love the podcast, please give us five stars, write a nice review. And we very, very much appreciate it because the more we, reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more people we get listening. Um, all right. So before we get into our marquee picks, the, the marquee picks this week, we're going to do our favorite government employees. So it's a very broad topic, but also very funny at the same time. We're going to let Mr. Budge Husky do a little promo for something he's very passionate about. So, Mr. Budge Husky, go ahead. Hey, thanks, guys, for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's a wonderful evening here. Great group of guys. Big, big fan of the podcast. Love the good work you're doing. So, let's keep it up. Uh, just because I got a couple seconds here, I'd like to shout out to a group we're doing. Um, I'm part of the committee to memorialize the legacy of John Lewis in Alabama. And uh, we'll put a little link here in the app or in the Instagram or in the you know, link to we'll it. Put it the, put a little review. We'll, we'll definitely include the link. Sure, where, where, you can give, where you can give or donate to a project we've got to build a memorial uh, to John Lewis in his hometown of Brundage, Alabama. Tax right. deductible. There you go. All right. So Civil there's rights gonna... icon, John Lewis. <laughs> All right. So what basically Mr. Budge Husky said, there's going to be a link. If you're very passionate about what's going on in politics today and very progressive, we are going to have a link for you to donate to this very important cause. Uh, it's great. I love that Bunch Husky's on the show tonight. It's fantastic. So what we're going to do now is we're going to transition to our marquee picks. It's our favorite government employees, and we're going to let Mr. Joe Fine kick it off. Give your third or your top three or whatever. We go on all three or just one here? Yeah, go through Matthew. all three and then just talk about the first one or whatever. All right. Gentlemen, for number three, I'm going with Alec Baldwin in The Hunt for Red October as Mr. Jack Ryan. It's absolute oh. classic character. It's our old adversary, the American Navy. Uh, <laughs> Sean Connery, love that film. Number two, I'm going to go with Samuel Gerard. Tommy Lee Jones from The Fugitive and U.S. Marshals, absolute classic 
duo of films. In are you the, going uh, U.S. Marshals? Are you going? Fu- oh, you, said, you said Fugitive. My bad, sir. Go right. It's not the same well, character, is it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. It, it is, is the same. It's the same yeah. character. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. He's the protagonist in one, um, in the Fugitive, and he's just a side character in uh, U.S. Well, actually, he's a protagonist in U.S. Marshals. Just right. I think I have it mixed up. Anyway, no, no it's, it's he's he's kind of a protagonist in both, right? So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Then number one, Sean Connery as 007 James Bond. It's my favorite government civil servant. Is there, so, is there a specific reason why you chose Sean Connery over the other ones? Do you want to rank your favorite Just James because Bond? his class is un, unmatched, <laughs> head and shoulders above the rest. I mean, he just oozes James Bond. You can't have James without Sean. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think of my favorite. I, I mean, I think if I if, – it'd be wild to see – Sean Connery in his prime in the current James Bond setup where there's so much more gritty and real or whatever. I, I think it's oh, he, just, would, he would kill it. Yeah, it's just so tough to sort of like to, you know, judge them or whatever just because the film styles are so different. Uh, well, we forget that Sean was a war veteran. He was in the Royal Navy and um, also he was in the Mr. Mr. Universe contest. He was Mr. Universe. So, he was in Mr. Universe. Yeah, so he was he was cut up like a Julian salad. Oh, Jesus. Wilson, I know you love James Bond. Go for it. What do you have to say about Sean Connery? Uh, well, I, I do I do love Sean. He's obviously the number one Bond uh Bond and I guess in the in this era we don't we obviously don't appreciate him slapping around any um any women like he claim proclaims to do. But I guess oh, are, yeah. are we giving my picks? Are we talking Sean. Yeah, let's just talk about Sean real quick before it before yeah, we go to Sean. yours. Kid. We're just uh, kind of going to try to bait you into say something misogynistic. Not Diane Sawyer interview, Sean. <laughs> no, I, can't. I mean, I guess my favorite in, in, uh, incarnation of Sean Connery is probably Daryl Hammond from Saturday Night Live. Celebrity. <laughs> um, the pen is minor. I think we all. Yeah. Know. <laughs> His favorite role is from what? Uh, all right, go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Preston. Do you have anything to say on this before we move on to uh, Budge Husky's top three? No, all great classic picks. Um, very uh very joseph fine picky there good job yeah oh yeah yeah. go ahead all right so we're gonna move on to uh, bud chusky's top three favorite government employees we'll see how creative he got on his first appearance (laughs) on the show i I think number three i felt like i I don't know our news today uh joe biden announced his vice president so i guess maybe i'm feeling a little patriotic so last minute change number three is gonna be jed bartlett uh, Martin Sheen from the West Wing. Can I do TV? Or is that yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I you can do commercials if you want to. Uh, I would have probably switched to like uh, Michael Douglas and the American president. But no, <laughs> uh, I think, you know, he's a classic. He's a statesman. He's inspiring. He's probably too good and better than the country deserves. Um, I think my number two is Tom Haverford from Parks and Recreation. Oh, wow. wow. Great character. choice. Yeah, good point. Uh, Anytime he was on the screen, you just couldn't help but laugh. I mean, you know, whatever came out of his mouth just cracked me up and was outrageous. Uh, shout out to the Pawnee Parks and Rec Department. Um, what's that? Uh, well, go to, go to your number one. I just want to – I want to – This is going to pencil in. He's going to top you, and he's going to say Andy Dwyer with his top one. <laughs> well, I I, if I, if I, I, you steal one? Or? <laughs> he's yeah. going to steal it. He's going to one-up you. you. Go ahead. You can't have the same, but I just want to—I want to—I want to challenge your pick there. Just I'm curious about why you chose him and not some of the other ones. But go ahead and do your number one. Oh, uh, my number one is Kevin Costner in The Postman. Um, I don't know if you could talk about dedication <laughs> to duty and to public service than that guy in the in the ongoing apocalypse. You know, he was there to to represent reform United States government. You know, when he gives that speech from Henry the Eighth or Henry the Fifth, sorry, you know, Saint 
St. Crispin's Day, and it throws in uh, those those in the, the neither rain nor sleet or snow. I, I can't tell you how inspired I was. Run through a brick wall. <laughs> there was this tweet by uh, Matt Oswald, who's Patton Oswald's uh, younger brother, whatever. But he said between Kevin Costner in Waterworld and The Postman, he's basically predicted 2020 because of uh, you know global warming and people trying to decimate the post office or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously a little too much, like a hyperbolic or whatever. It's a little close. Yeah, those films definitely hit different. Budge. <laughs> uh, so real quick, why Tom Haver? <laughs> and not you know ron or leslie or uh i mean i don't even know if andy was ever really had a government position but uh i don't know there are a lot of I me mean, obviously there are a lot of great characters in that pretty uh pretty great show well i think tom kind of exemplified what everybody thinks about a government employee like someone who doesn't actually do anything you know <laughs> but just like kind of invents things for himself to do he's a little full of himself uh, yeah but i get you know so it like reminded you of yourself yeah, slightly, sure, <laughs> for sure, uh, no doubt about it, uh, you know, uh, irrational self-confidence. <laughs> Listening to 90s hip-hop constantly, yeah. that's Budge. Our, our, that's yeah, the sure. right there. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, who doesn't love to treat themselves every yeah. once in a while? So. Treat yourself. Dude, I, I still sometimes. Right now, Budge is making a genuine playlist right now. He's looking at his phone. He's like, what genuine albums can I make? Uh, <laughs> Shout out to that little website that was like Tom Haverfordisms or whatever that would like generate a random thing he said. Like, you know, it would be like Forks, a.k.a. Food Rate. Oh, I know. I know. I think I, I would. I want to see the outtakes. I know there's plenty of bloopers and outtakes or whatever, but I really feel like there's one of Aziz Asari that's probably got cut that didn't even get put on YouTube of him just coming up with all these little tiny things because you know that's almost like he just had so much fun making those things and they're all really really funny i wish i was like the one who got to decide which one like made it to the show and which one didn't uh <laughs> whittles yeah oh yeah um all right preston we're gonna move on to uh your top three government employee picks <sighs> i i've got four good picks i'm a little torn here um, per usual but uh also per usual i'm going kind of the funny route so, so my number three is going to be uh, we had him or I had him in uh, one of our long lost podcasts, but uh, as one of my picks for Will Ferrell characters, but I'm going with Alan Gamble slash Gator as <laughs> forensic accountant and then detective from the other guys. Um, next, I'm going with uh, Marty Huggins from the campaign. Dude, you're doing Will Ferrell movies. <laughs> and uh, number one, so I've kind of got a little tie situation here. I'm going to mention both, but one of them has a little bit more of a special place in my heart because I love this TV show so much. If you've never seen the movie The Spy with Melissa McCarthy, it is so funny. It's probably her best movie, and she plays a CIA uh, analyst named Susan Cooper. Please go see that film watch it when you get a chance it's so funny um but i would be remiss if i did not mention mr richard splett from Fuck! from veep god damn it which to me is in a show with so many great characters <laughs> richard splett it, it's just to me he was the funniest i mean he was just so hilarious his his little like just little snarky, but like optimistic quips that he would always have 
were just so, it was just so great juxtaposition, uh, uh, in juxtaposition to Jonah Ryan, who is just constantly like throwing out abusive language to anyone and everyone. And uh, Richard Splett, like, I think it's, it's Sam Richardson is the actor. His character is just always optimistic, always hilarious, always like every line he has in that show is just perfect. It's so funny. The writing's great and he delivers it um, in, in just the most perfect way. But uh, Matt, Matthew, clearly he was on your list. No, I literally have Richard and Jonah as number one. And I, I feel like you almost stole my Google Docs, like had access to it because you almost said the exact same thing because the way they juxtaposition Jonah and Richard, like you said, is so ridiculous because uh, Richard is almost this like innocent soul who's super smart, but also takes things super literally. And then there's Jonah who's super dumb, but is super confident and super sleazy. And it's right. just like, this weird sort of like in like entanglement between like how they interact with one another and like how Jonah, I mean, like how Richard can't like see that Jonah's full of shit all the time. It, it really doesn't matter, but they both just have, I feel like Richard has the best lines. Like it's almost like Jonah sets them up and Richard sort of has this like undercutting subtle line that you have to always listen to because it's not like a loud punch line. He doesn't like come with a bang. He comes with a little like under the sheets type of thing. It's so funny. I right. love, I love they, Richard so much. And they kind of, I mean, they even like switched positions in some, like, as far as like one, like at one point, Jonah's his boss, and then uh, Richard becomes Jonah's boss, and then they kind of go back and forth. And this doesn't, um, Richard, at some point, he takes over for the, uh, the golden retriever that was the mayor that like, <laughs> yeah, so it was like. Yeah, so it's like satirizing some town or whatever that has like a dog or a cat that's a mayor or whatever, and then the, the like, yeah. uh, Selena... Yeah, Gary gives the dog like chocolate on like because they're trying to dispose of so I forget the like line, but like if you watch the show, whatever, it's all yeah. so layered, you kind of like have to sort of see it, whatever. But uh yeah, the dog dies and Richard winds up taking over or whatever, uh, because he's like a veterinarian and like he's sort of whatever they're like, oh, the next best thing's a vet. Wilson, yeah. I feel like do you I feel like you watch Veep a lot, do you or not? Uh I did to be fair, I didn't finish it. Um, oh. but I did watch like the first three or four seasons. So yeah, I, I feel like the, the last season's pretty weak, anyways. But the first, yeah, but you definitely know who Richard is and Jonah. Yeah, is, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I and I love. I mean, I I just now with Dolly Jones and Jonah, I just can't think of him without Widow's Peak. What he's like, <laughs> in my head. But this kind of got me on thinking of that. Gave me can I give an honorable mention? And I and I wish I kind of would have said this my number three, but kind of need to just. Uh, I, Congressman David Dilbeck from Striptease, aka uh, Burt Reynolds. <laughs> Uh, he's all greased up. Yeah. It's, it's got to be one of my favorite public servants. Wow. I totally <laughs> forgot about that character. That's a deep track. <laughs> R.I.P. Burt, man. God, oh, man, we losing him by the dozen. <laughs> Joe, are you a Veep fan or have you ever seen it? No, I've never seen Veep. I need to get oh, on that. Oh, man. Dude, oh, gosh. Especially with Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Love her. And she's great, too. I mean, all the characters. I, I love Matt Walsh's character as uh, McClendon. I think he's hilarious. His yeah. name's Mike McClintock. He's fucking stupid, but he's also hilarious at the same time. Right, uh, right. No, it really, it really is something that like I almost lost interest in when I first started watching it because it all, it was almost like too, too dry or too uh, like not I should say too dry, but like it's just like it was almost too fast paced. Like, like if you don't really know what's going on, you can get lost, which is pretty apropos because we're going to talk about a movie that we can all get lost in or whatever. But uh, no, it's it's so so funny. I, I think it's uh, I used to. Uh, like if I ranked my favorite shows, whatever in terms of comedies, I'd do like The Office, Veep, The Rest of Development kind of thing. But it's it's great. It's awesome. 
Yeah. Uh, so, Real fast pace, dude. Yeah, like you can, like the jokes just keep flying. They keep on moving by. It's not like something they like hit the punchlines. It's like you got to keep paying attention. Otherwise, you're going to like get lost or fall behind, so to speak. Um, this all actually, right. it's kind of this. I mean, well, I don't know if we want to touch on it here or not, but it, it kind of got me thinking. I have this noted to kind of ask you about Matthew is I have always felt that the, the, the real time events that inspired kind of the events in this movie. Um, there was like a comedy of errors in real life as to how they did not know who Kim Philby, who, you know, there are certain characters in this movie based on was not the spot, like was not the mole. And I've always thought that like an Armando Iannucci sort of like <laughs> retelling of this story, of that story, like how it went down would be hilarious. Like you could make, you know, just an outrage because it is kind of like a comedy of errors. And I think he could do a really good job with it. There Maybe is an episode. Done, but you know. There is an episode where they try to figure out who like leaked a certain terrible word <laughs> to the press or whatever. So, and that actually is a really good episode, but yeah, they haven't done like a full season on it. So, which would be kind of like the equivalent to a movie, whatever. But yeah. So if you want to like see what Will, I mean, uh, Bud just talking about, go to Veep on HBO and look at the, yeah, I think it's like season four, it's called Seagate, whatever. Uh, Cause I think you can put together what I'm talking about. All right, so I'm going to move on to my top three picks, and then we'll move on to the movie and let uh, Bud sort of give us a, an overview because he's the expert. But my top three favorite government employees, um, I've got number three, Lieutenant Jim Dangle from Reno 911. I'm, oh, copying, I'm, copying, I'm copying Joe on number two. I've got, I didn't actually spe- like pick a specific James Bond. I'm just going James Bond in the James Bond series. And obviously we just – like spent a lot of time talking about it so we don't have to waste any more on it, whatever. But I, I picked a combo of Richard and Jonah and Veep because like Preston was talking about, it really is like, like you can't have one without the other in some sense because they just like compliment each other so much. I do want to talk like just the, the one line that I feel like it's not even like super funny, but I think it's so funny. But there's this line where he's like, they're in like the Nevada state house or whatever. And they're sort of talking about like the legal ramifications of a revote or counting votes or whatever. But he goes like, he's talking to this woman and he goes, my, uh, Oh, you can just email me. My uh, email is split two at splitnet.net. He goes, split one is my father. And I was like, well, hate to see him go, but I really want to get my hands on that handle. (laughs) (laughs) So it's so silly. It's so stupid, but like he delivers these lines with such authenticity. Like he really is so, so funny. It's so great. Like he delivers it with like innocence and also like comedy. It's it's, like, he really just, yeah, no, I love, I love, love, love Richard split. Yeah, um, I mean, it's the precision and how he delivers it, and then like it's all deep and very literal and just very funny, and it's just awesome contrast to Jonah's like <laughs> ridiculous, bombastic, you know, like swinging into a room and basically dissing everyone with misogynistic and just like ridiculous. It's it's like he he's got this like thing where like he he doesn't know when to show up, shut up, but he's not saying something terribly inappropriate. It's like sometime what what was the like the line where like he goes, "Oh, I can clarify this. Uh a bunch of 40-year-old women were uh raped uh, was he said like uh not raped, that's terrible, whatever. He goes, "We're like molested and Mr. Ryan was one of them." <laughs> like it's like <laughs> Because like what like Teddy was like molesting these women, but like Jonah looked like some weird like big bird looking woman. He molested him too. Right, <laughs> like right. I mean, the implications just uh, like you, like I said, you got to see this show. It's so 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 funny. I I really can't give it enough stars because I I love it to death. I, like I just put it on stars. the background. Yeah, I think uh, I'm giving it ten stars out of five. That's how much I love this show. Mm-hmm. All right. So what we're gonna do now? We're gonna move on to Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. 
the review that we're doing. Uh, we do have, like I said, special guest, Mr. Budge Husky, who sort of is an expert on not just the movie, but also the history as well. We're going to let Budge sort of kick it off a little bit, and then we're going to sort of play off of what he has to say. And uh, so Mr. Go ahead, Budge. Mr. Budge Husky. Uh, thanks, guys. Um, I, I think uh, expert may be a bit of a stretch. I would just say that uh, I am very familiar with the work of John Lacare, uh, Lacare, uh, and I'm also pretty familiar with the events leading up to it. Um, well, well, don't read. sell yourself short. I mean, you're an expert. I, I'm a big fan of the genre, but I guess I guess I'll kind of start with the bird's eye view of it. I, I think it should be noted that, that you know the this this book and kind of the events leading up to it are inspired by some things that actually happened. And, and what actually happened was uh, Britain in the lead up into, you know, the Cold War and during the Cold War, you, you pre during World War II, they were the premier intelligence service, you know, the SIS. The, the Americans had nothing organized like that. They had people on the ground. They were already keeping tabs on things that were happening in like pre-war Germany, pre-war Spain, pre-war Italy. And they were able to sort of build their network out infrastructure and every other sort of secret service like the CIA and others sort of based their infrastructure off of what MI6 and MI5 had done. Uh, but what kind of occurred as, you know, American defense spending post-war, all of that kind of ramped up is they began to take kind of a second, you know, a second seat to us. Like in a, in a, when it came to intelligence exchange, we didn't actually share. We made a lot of advances. We were just better funded than they were. Uh, but what also really hurt their credibility was there was a series of very embarrassing leaks that came from MI6 and British and British Soviet service. double agents. Yes. And so what it was kind of occurred was like they had set, you know, the Cambridge Five, as they're called, you know, and Kim Philby was one of them. But of the people who got caught, a lot of them were kind of drunks or, you know, what you'd kind of consider at the time now, like, you know, gay that were people kind of run out or any oddballs in society. But they were all recruited, you know, kind of during the Secret Service and by the communists, really by the USSR and during their time at Cambridge, right, in college. Uh, and so that's kind of what happened to this guy, Kim Philby. Uh, Kim Philby was a guy who grew up in a very like prominent English family, very well bred, you know, an, a, an old boy, if you will, as they would call him of that culture. And he was tapped by the Secret Service. Uh, but he was also approached by the Soviets. And at that time, I don't think it was very uncommon for, you know, men in pre-war Britain, you know, who see the rise of fascism in Europe and they're well educated, they're at college, they're reading to sort of in a reactionary since become like members of a communist party or attend these communist events, right? You know, they, they yeah. tended to the more liberal and that's kind of how, what, what occurred. So everyone knew that Philby and a lot of, you know, the people in the secret service had been involved in some like left or far left movements, but it all kind of got chalked up to, oh, he was in college, you know, or university, like everybody's, you know, what's that great Winston Churchill line? You're either young and liberal you don't have a you know you don't have a heart and if you're old and, you know if you're, or if you're young and conservative you don't have a heart you're old and liberal you don't have a brain it was that kind of telling because yeah, it's, it's kind of like girls experiment with, experiment with each other in college just like guys experiment with pro progressive ideas kind of thing right uh sure exactly <laughs> <laughs> made out with her one time Matthew. yeah i was only at you're one communist i was only at one communist yeah. rally okay there's no big deal like yeah only burned no. one book <laughs> 
but sorry. I only but, stepped on the flag before it was on fire. I, I yeah. even stuttered. If I didn't stutter through the joke, I wouldn't apologize. But I stuttered through it. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Budge. No, for no, inter no, interrupting your flow. No, stop me any point. Stop me any point. And I'm sure historians and and scholars are are rolling no, graves, yelling into their the into their cars and microphones, listening to this. But they're gonna make that same analogy that I did. So go ahead. <laughs> we have a very devout like like British historical society that follows us. But we so also have Canada. To, we also have some Canada. people that are just incredibly young and incredibly horny that want me to put it in that perspective as well. So, Budge, I'm sorry. I do have to appeal to our audience. So go ahead. No, <laughs> stop me whenever it gets to So basically, you have to think about it. That so so Philby then sort of switches his. He changes gears. Like he's about to become a little more conservative. You know, a little more Tory. You know, as I guess the term would be over there, kind of that center right politic. Uh, to kind of fit in. And so, you know, his spy masters realize, you know, and the Russians are like, this guy can really go far if we, if we place him right. You know, if, if he plays the game correctly and he keeps feeding us information. So he kind of worked his way up the Secret Service. You know, the rest of the guys kind of got caught or, you know, got out of the game. He starts to rise. So he becomes like a very key to the Russian plans. You know, they want to see him rise in the MI6. So, he has a series of appointments and during this entire time he is obviously selling information to the Russians, not selling, but like providing it to the Russians. He's a spy. And the Americans kind of pick up on this because they kind of do, they're the first people to really do data type intelligence and like use computers. So they're managed to put together kind of like, I guess, Smiley does in the, in the movie that by they can place what information, who was privy to what information and of all these different leaks, these different times, what are the, you know, what people cross over? you know, who's involved in, who was in America at this time, who was there, and Kim Philby kept coming up. And so they would alert, like, MI6 all the time, like, this guy is probably leaking your intelligence. And they were like, oh, it can't be old Philby. You know, he's a good, he's the, he's the epitome of the English system, right? It, it can't be Philby. And it's just sort of, at some point, it became blinders, right? And that's why I was kind of mentioning earlier, you could kind of do in a, a Mondor Iannucci type story where it's like, it's so clear, it's this guy. And, yeah. they, and they just don't see it. They just cannot bring themselves to see it. Um, and so eventually kind of Philby, is this kind of just an interesting twist to the story? He's in Beirut at the time and he's kind of approached by a British agent and he, he in, in this conversation, it's recorded, he kind of comes clean. And when this conversation takes place, he's at the CIA um, attache in Berlin's house. And the guy was posing as a the CIA agent from America whose house it's all occurred in was posing as a oil CEO. That gentleman who was a CIA plant was an Alabamian by the name of Miles Copeland, who had been to Alabama, played jazz music, became this high-ranking CIA. He had a son that was also there. That son, son. is named Stuart Copeland, famous <laughs> for police and other, obviously, endeavors with the <clears throat> oyster head. But Preston, I figured you would appreciate that little tidbit of information. Well, I think what I think what Budge is basically getting at here is there is a ton, ton of backstory here. The more you know, the more you can actually understand what's going on immediately in this film or whatever. Um, because like like we said, this film takes place in like the early 70s, whatever. It's right in the height, like I wouldn't say the height. Would you say it's the height of the Cold War? It's it's, the, it's near it's, there, yeah. It's near there, there escalating, whatever. Uh, so what we've got here is like what Budge was talking about is we've got uh, the British intelligence agency. Uh, I forgot the name you even said. I, like again, I'm a little bit clueless or whatever. Is they've discovered there's a mole within their operation, and 
they need to figure it out. So, like I said, Budge gave will, a great great background to it, but go ahead. You rein me in here. I'll get to the, to where I'm going. So John okay. McCarr, who wrote this book, was obviously involved in intelligence services, knew Kim Philby, knew some of these people. So when he writes this book, like I said, Britain had been rocked by these big leaks. Their reputation as like the premier secret service has been tarnished, right? It's kind of in tatters, very low point. So he writes, you know, these books that kind of, and then some of the buildup to these books, you know, and Smiley, a lot of things had gone wrong. This is not the first book. This is this first of what's called like the Carla trilogy in which, you know, it pits George Smiley versus Carla. But there had been books previously in which Smiley was a character that kind of involved, I guess, fuck ups. All right. On behalf of MI6. And this book starts out very differently than how the movie starts out. This book starts out from the perspective of young Bill Roach, the schoolboy, uh, and who's in the, I don't know, in the movie with Mark Strong. And he just kind of see, he, he has this new teacher and it's told the first 30 odd pages. You're like, you know, what is going on? Who's this kid, this chubby divorce, son of a divorcee, <laughs> like, and this teacher he's forming this weird bond with who speaks multiple languages, but like, is kind of crippled and you're not really sure why and, and you don't really get all the pieces and but sort of unlike that the book just drops the movie just drops you in um, yeah so not like <laughs> yeah and so i actually noted i, I mentioned this earlier I, I was watching it with you know with my girlfriend and i said you know now that i'm look watching this again like are you at all confused as how it just starts out with you know jim prado going to czechoslovakia to budapest you know or hungary sorry or the, what are, what you know i guess i'll put that to y'all were y'all confused by that at all um i absolutely was I, I'm, I'm not scared to admit that i had a hard time following, following this movie um I, I understand the point we talked about before in the show whatever and i think every single person here has taken you know rudimentary english language classes whatever sort of start in the middle of things in medias race whatever so it's not like an unusual thing but at the same time it, uh, I almost made a note of this is that like it, it kind of almost felt like I was watching a foreign movie without the like the subtitles because it was in English but at the same time it was so kind of hard like it moves so quickly and this movie is something like yeah, it, it, it requires a lot of exposition a lot of explanation but at the same time what I was thinking is sort of like the the weird ironic twist in that sort of situation is that a movie that requires a ton of exposition, but it's also featuring characters that are spies who don't really want to say anything. So you almost like have to like, they don't want to give their true motives. No, so yeah, it's like, exactly. So we've got this like story where it really needs people to tell us what's going on, but we've got these characters who want to keep the information they have contained. And so it does make it a difficult, I don't want to say a chore, but it makes it difficult for like the audience to really understand what's going on. Uh, I mean, so Joe, do you, you want to talk about that for a little bit or? Yeah, no, it's interesting that you bring that up because Smiley's character portrayed by Gary Oldman is very interesting in the fact that, I mean, Gary Oldman, his dialogue has to be on four or five sheets of paper. <laughs> I mean, his, I think his longest speech is when he's with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in, the, in his apartment when they're both smoking cigarettes on the couch. And, you know, he's talking about the first time he met Carla in 1955. And I'm like, man, this is the longest I have heard Gary Oldman speak <laughs> this entire film. And we are almost two hours into this. Yeah. So I think that this is one of, the, one of those movies where you have to be locked in. You have to, you know, really watch Gary Oldman, how he interacts with other characters, his nods. You know, like it's one of those movies where you really have to, you know, pay attention to how the characters interact with one another to really get the flow of the film. And I can understand how that could be confusing. 
I, I will just kind of chime. It's kind of funny you mentioned that scene because that was what, if you look back on it, a lot of people thought Gary Oldman was going to win the Academy Award for that scene where he's doing the monologue because this this book has been uh, ad- adapted before in a very famous BBC for miniseries. And like like you said, you had some problems following it maybe. The miniseries was seven hours long, seven episodes. So like yeah, you were like able Guinness. to kind of like build and build and build. And that's why when this movie came out, I think a lot of people were like, that is going to be a very difficult enterprise because you have a lot of information that you're going to have to boil down into, you know, and it's not that long. I mean, it's only two hours and change. And you know? Yeah. Well, it's two hours and five minutes. And, yeah. and the way they shot that scene with Gary Oldman, you know, reenacting his speech to Carla in that, in that restaurant, you know, like the way he's looking at, you know, kind of like beyond the camera a little bit and the way that he delivers those lines and, how he's like, and he said nothing, not not one word, you know, it's just like, damn, you know, he's the consummate professional. Yeah. What do you think, Preston, in terms of following this? Is, was this your first time watching it? Like, what did you think? And like, did you think it was difficult? Did you have to rewind? What did you sort of take from it? Um, yeah, I mean, this this was my first time watching it. I will say, uh, Joe, your uh, suggestion to put the subtitles on was quite helpful. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's they, a bunch of suggestion. <laughs> oh, that, okay. I think that's I watch right. subtitles of everything now. You do? Uh, uh, font, do. Font. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, there were times where I would pause and like look up a few things just to like make sure I understood some of the like verbiage and, and just lingo, you know, in the MI6 world. But um, I think like you, Matthew, I was, well, I was a little taken aback from the beginning because, A, I, I thought Mark Strong's character, I just assumed he was going to be in the movie for a while, which, I mean, <laughs> he does, obviously, he was. He, he was, but, you know, he gets shot at the beginning, and I was just thinking, man, this is, I mean, there are a lot of great actors in this film, but, like, I just wasn't expecting that, and, um, yeah, I mean, like, at times it was difficult, I had to do a little research, maybe, I mean, it probably rewound like a couple of times, but um, I mean, with a movie like this, I, the, the things that I'm really looking at as I like, try to understand the plot as it goes along, though, like, <laughs> I, I see you've got all of these great actors, a lot of them uh, have been up for Oscar nominations or, or have won, and uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of in awe of, of, of all of them, and then like the scenery, I thought was just was just beautiful i mean like the just the that old like european feel I, I, as i watched it, i thought of budge and joe i was like I, of course they like this movie <laughs> i mean it really was it was really pleasant and it was uh you know it, it, it was it was a character in itself and then yeah i mean i thought gary oldman as uh george smiley is just interesting i mean as this like spy with this huge task involved i mean he's he was kind of like the anti-bond in many ways i mean he's very it's a very minimal performance. I mean, like you're you're right, Joe. He doesn't talk that much, but he holds like incredible control of the camera because every time he comes on, you're just like, wow, like God, Gary Oldman's such a good actor. <laughs> He's just uh, in, in 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 the most minimal kind of ways. I mean, he it just uh, I, you know, I don't know like what his influences were when he when he went about this role, but um, I, I certainly anytime he was around, I was like, okay, you know, I guess. I- I kind of have written down, and I guess it's a good time to pose that question. You know, 
it's funny to me, you know, in uh, 1917, everybody was kind of saying this is the the British Avengers. This is like the greatest, you know, actors assembled, you know, and I kind of laugh at like, this, <laughs> this might be a better lineup. And it's basically all of them. But it, I guess in that sense, did y'all think Gary Oldman gave the best performance in this movie? As, I think, I think Mark Strong did. Do you mean, oh, you mean oh, the best of the, like the, the characters or like the yeah. best of his career? No, 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 no. Best of okay. the character. Oh. I mean, it's tough to give it to Mark Strong just because I feel like his pretty limited screen time. I will say that like it, it was it was sort of like I was kept on thinking to my head like I had to look it up on Wikipedia while I was watching. It. I was like, is this the same guy? I think it is because he's always sort of presented as this almost like you know dapper villain kind of thing with the slick hair back and sort of almost looking sort of like a a British gentleman Moriarty aristocrat. Type. Yeah, yeah, kind of thing. But in this one, he's got that sort of like patchy baldness or whatever and he's very very vulnerable he's living i do have like a real question about this but he's like he's kind of like matt foley living in a van down by the river kind of thing just like living in this trailer yeah kind of thing so he's almost like subjugated to like almost like uh squalor but like yeah no like but that's that's sort of his character is that like he's got to lay low but he also like he's he's feeling threatened because he got you know uh what do you want to say uh got burned yeah, he got betrayed he, yeah he got betrayed well not just tortured but he got betrayed by what like people he trusted at the same time too yeah. so he's right. sort of Best just friend. like he doesn't know what to do right so yeah yeah in a way like his character in some ways has if you want to say the most depth but like he doesn't I, I, it's hard to give him like the best award because like he doesn't have the most screen time too like not that like the most screen time equals the best performance or whatever but like he doesn't really even show up in the movie again until at least uh an hour and 20 in i feel like is that is that fair or is that I feel like I kind of forget, kind of kind of forget about him a little bit. It's it's really tough to say. I mean, like as far as like the Gary Oldman, uh, his you know his role here, it, he's he has so many great roles throughout his career, and like a lot of when people do the like these countdowns and stuff like that, like best Gary Oldman role, like a lot of times Tinker Taylor is up there as like the top one, and I, you know it's 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 like hard for me. to like I read that, I'm like, well, what about all these other actors who did so well? And I'm like, what about all these <laughs> other roles? I mean, I, you know, I could think of maybe some other roles where I think that were better um, for Gary Oldman than this one. But you know, yeah, I mean, Mark Strong does a great job. I, I thought um, Tom Hardy as Ricky Tar was pretty <laughs> interesting because I'm Tom Hardy in different roles. Um, but I, I, I really, I thought, I thought that was a great performance. And you know, Toby Jones is his usual self. Was this pretty early? I feel like this was kind of early in Tom Hardy's career in terms of like, I don't know, like in rewatch, I'm like, oh, this is Tom Hardy. But with the first time I saw it, I was, I I don't think I had the same like sort of, oh, it's Tom Hardy effect in terms of he's been in so many great things after this movie. But when I watched it, when it first came out, it didn't have the same sort of plug in the sense like, oh shit, I love this guy because he's great in all the things he does. No, Matthew, that's, yeah. it's funny. I was thinking the exact same thing. I was, I was about to say that, but just sort of along those lines, this movie came out in 2011. Who do you think was the biggest actor in it? I almost think Tom, Colin Firth had to be. Colin, Colin Firth. Firth just, I think Colin Firth just won the Oscar, right? Like, you know, at that point, like he, I think he yeah. was the one people like, oh, it's Colin Firth. Like, you know, Gary, yeah. big name. Now I think he's probably up there with both. And now, I mean, Tom Hardy benedict cumberbatch or both you know oh yeah absolutely huge. i mean huge well, I gonna add, I mean, we yeah, didn't okay. even mention colin firth and that's such a good point i mean colin, colin firth is is uh, one say. of the great actors around right now and he didn't really have i mean obviously he has a big role but i mean like as far as 
you know, it, it seems like they did a really good job of kind of giving everyone an equal role in, in like speaking and scenes. I, I don't know. I'd like to like see the breakdown, but you know, <laughs> no, no one really stole the show necessarily, at least in my opinion. What well, were you I say, think, Joe? Um, yeah. Uh, Colin Firth is, I was going to praise his performance in the film because as a corollary to this, I was going to ask you guys who did initially, who did you think was the mole? Um, and oh, Colin <laughs> Firth would, then the first time I watched the movie was one of, one of my last picks. And I was going to give like a nod to his performance because, uh, you know, you always think it's Alan line, that scotch bastard, you know, like yeah. smart Alec. He's, he's going overseas head. You know, he's trying to usurp control and get all the Americans intelligence, but it ends up being menacing looks. Yeah, exactly. Man, he was, he was pretty scary. Um, uh, no, I've got this written down, Joey, and so you can tell me if I'm wrong or whatever. But like, there's that scene in the office, the TV show where they play uh, murder in Savannah or whatever, and uh, Dwight has this quote where he says, "The perpetrator is never the person you most suspect, and it's never the person that you <laughs> like least suspect." it's always the person that you most medium suspect. <laughs> and in some ways, that's kind of what this film was, right? In some ways, like, Colin first character, like, fell in this sort of, like, murky, like, murky middle ground in the sense that, like, he kind of looked suspicious, but at the same time, other people kept on bouncing in more prominent yeah. positions. And yeah. he kept on going, oh, well, I think it's going to be him. And then, like, like, it's sort of like the exact same thing, kind of like what Dwight says, like, oh, the guy I kind of forgot about was the guy that wound up being the mole in the sense. Well, yeah. what, what were your, what were the most suspicious things uh, you found from Bill? Because I, I had a, you know, I'd like to hear that because I, I have an interesting kind of note on that. I, the like, answer to me is like almost nothing. But then again, like, like I said, I got lost in this movie. I was just looking almost like my short attention span. I've sort of, I feel like I've almost been victim to all sorts of, you know tv apps phones whatever but like the loudest people usually draw me like the most attention whatever so i was like kind of thinking it was that that like sort of angry cherub dude what's his name like toby toby jones who <laughs> plays outline i was like god that yeah. guy's gotta be it he's kind of sick yeah <laughs> he looks like a baby that's been like drunk for a hundred days or something like that <laughs> but, yeah. Boston. Yeah, yeah. but he just he just he just admitted some sort of evil i guess but obviously like i said it's the person like i feel like they were throwing you off but uh i can't i i can't point to specific clues i really can't i feel like but also and budge tell me if you think this was part of it obviously the writing was really good in this respect because they kind of had us bouncing around but they gave they gave hayden some other storylines you know as far as like how he uh like what was going on with uh oh god what was her name Anne and um Irina what was her name Anne Irina Anne is George's wife yeah and who he has Amy is George's wife with. yeah right who he's having an affair with right so I feel like they were giving us other storylines with Hayden and and it just kind of like I don't in a in a way was kind of like you know like look over here don't look over there like that, you're you're dealing with some other stuff with Hayden right now, and I, I don't know. I mean, like a lot of sleight of hand stuff. But very sleight of hand. Kind of address that yeah, too. That's that's what that's what Carla said. Like when he had he took the lighter that said yeah. to George from Anne, with love from Anne, because he knew that that's his blind spot, right? He's like he won't if 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 Bill Hayden he told him Bill to carry on the affair with her because he will think like you just said, Preston. It's like. I'm thinking it's him because I'm distracted by that, right? Like, yeah. I'm going to think Bill's the mole because he's having sex with my wife. Right? <laughs> and so that that's kind of the play. But that kind yeah. of brings up an interesting point. Like I said, I was, I was watching it, and I pegged it to my girlfriend. I was like, 
what what did you see anything is she pointed out something that i didn't notice and she said i didn't really play that this had anything to do with it but i pegged it as suspicious like that he was trying to get caught having an affair and i thought that was weird like he was he's like if someone who's a spy who's trained to like not be noticed right not get caught you think he was trying well do you think he was trying do you think that was like christmas party do you yeah, think that well, was like a diversion in the sense of like I'd rather him suspect I'm having an affair? Well, in hindsight, yes. Instead, it, instead of like being suspected like, as a mole, yeah, but so like, I feel it's almost like hedging your bets in a sense. Like I, I just, I, I'm not, I agree with you. In hindsight, yes, but at the time, I you know when I'm wa- when I was watching it over again, I was like I didn't even really notice that or think about that. I thought that I thought yeah. that was the point. Well, let me let me brilliant. Like he, they were doing that. That's basically like if we're looking at it from the lens of Smiley. And that's kind of fooling him. Maybe that's was also fooling us as we watched it. And um, I don't, I mean, you know, now you look back and you're like, oh, it's kind of obvious. But. Well, let's pose this question to Wilson. I mean, excuse me, I'll edit that out. Excuse me, to Budge. Um, so when you have the advantage of reading the book beforehand or whatever, you like have this advantage of knowing what's going to happen. So you can almost look at the film in a different way. You can almost, you know what's going to happen. You can sort of try to pay attention to things that you hope are going to be portrayed on the screen or whatever. Did you see the pulp fiction effect? Yeah, exactly. Can you see like, um, did you see anything when you were watching this stuff in terms of like clues that you didn't pick up like when you first watched, because maybe you're paying attention to other things, but you saw these sort of subtle hints at what was going on. Like, can you just give us a, maybe a few examples? I, I'm just curious because when I watched this, like I said, like it's, it's tough to like be able to have like a very, very, like discerning eye because the plot's kind of moving so quickly. But when you have the advantage of reading the book and know what's going to happen, like maybe you could have picked up on some things they were so throwing at us. I, I think it's one of these things that I, and I meant to touch on it, but I got kind of off, off on a tangent, but I think it's important to sort of just note that this book is probably considered, if not the best book in this genre, it's in anyone's top three. Um, and so this sort of, maze and like to use the and there's a lot of things kind of interesting to use the term like the lexicon like in the book you get like these long dossiers kind of on these people because it's told from the perspective of george smiley's interviews with everyone so yeah. he's interviewing them and you're kind of gleaning oh, so it's like a true detective kind of <laughs> i mean kind of like but you're kind of gleaning from george like what the based on the questions he's asking what is he think like you know it's kind of yeah. like a position in a law in a you know in a, in a legal sense based on the questions what is he getting at you're trying to kind of figure it out but you get these kind of long backgrounds and that's kind of the advantage to a book and honestly to the miniseries you get to dive in a little more so like what i actually thought they did a pretty good job of like giving you making sure you know that that bill hayden's kind of this aloof intellectual like flamboyant kind of like doesn't get acts like he doesn't give a shit about anything that's going on you know, without, without spelling it out with a lot of exposition. Like, it's kind of one of the things I disagreed with you on, Matthew. I thought, I was like, I was expecting this would be a really hard movie to make because it would rely so heavily on exposition. Like, you think to yourself, when George is, like, you're looking at how he solves it, right? It's very, it's a pattern. So he goes, okay, based off who was in this location at this time, like when Ricky Tarr called, who was yeah. working with And so he knows that that, that, that page is missing. So I'm going to have to figure this other information out based off something else. So let's figure out who was working and who was told that Jim Prado got shot. So I, I'm sitting here thinking, when you hear about this, you're like, is this going to be George Smiley, like sitting there with the clue pad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, striking British off everyone. Like, yeah. 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 
based off who's available. And I think that that, and then when you're reading a book, it's a lot easier to kind of do that. And when you've got kind of seven hours, but I kind of thought it was, you know, they managed to make, you know, obviously Peter Gwillem going into getting the, like, the book to be very dramatic, right? But like the real drama in like the book and say the other miniseries is like, what's in the file, you know? Like, and yeah. I think, and you, you, they did, I thought they did a good job of like using that tension and putting it into other places that like it kind of was done seamlessly. But I guess your, your question was more of like, what, was there anything that stood out that I didn't notice? I mean, honestly, they didn't change much about this book. The only thing they did was just cut stuff out. Like basically- yeah. The only, I mean, I've got a list of differences that I, I noted. And, uh, you know, one of them is that, you know, Peter Gwillem isn't gay. You know, he's kind of a ladies man in the in the book series. He actually dates like under like college students. You know, he's kind of a, he's also kind of a dick. But he's also a really good agent, which is kind of shown here. Um, so you seen the miniseries too? I have, watched, yeah. Actually, okay. Funny, I watched it like yeah. 10 years ago in a basement apartment in DC when it snowed with our mutual friend, Rob, like it was, <laughs> it was so long ago. I got it. Netflix DVD sent to me one at a time. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. So we had to like wait until the next one came in. BBC <laughs> productions. What's well, I'm going to try, try to watch the miniseries. Um, Dude, I, I recommend it. Cause like, there's a lot of stuff. Like I think again, like uh, the way I kind of viewed this movie and it's kind of like what you hear about a lot of songwriting from like Jason Isbell and Bruce Springsteen and people that talk about how I have a longer story I'm trying to tell, but I'm just constantly cutting things out and hoping that like the listener, or in this case, the viewer is able to glean the information I'm trying to show you without me having to use all this exposition. Yeah. I mean, that's something we talked about beforehand is that this movie asks so much. I feel like it asks a lot of the audience. Like Absolutely. you need to well, come you fucking prepared. Yeah. When yeah. I can take a break, it's like, you need to come with your homework ready in a sense like you you should have read the prep work or whatever and this we're going to start with 25 percent of the information already that you should know or whatever in some sense like yeah. you need to know what's going on like did y'all even realize in the beginning that george and control had been fired dude no no, no. Like, for real I, I because he looks that. at you and he's yeah. like he's like smiley's coming with me and you can yeah, that's what like, i mean when i was talking about earlier he and uh oldman looks over and he's like he gives the slightest little nod and he's like all right. Well, he some of them walks out with him, and you're like, "All right, well, I guess you know, like he, they're a team, they're a unit." And that there. was one well, of the slowest walks I've ever seen. Well, some of this is like I was saying earlier in terms of like it's watching a movie that's like from a foreign language, but without subtitles or whatever, because the, it, it's it's obviously in English, but at the same time, there's so much like sort of what, what do you want to say? Like, uh, I should say, oh shit, I'm trying to, I'm blanking in my head, but in terms of like terminology know. that like we maybe aren't familiar with in terms of they just start from the beginning say this guy's control like what excuse me circus i don't i didn't know what circus oh, right so to, like you have to it's remember can, that like you have to be like things like there's on the letterhead that was like chief of intelligence like, yeah control but, that he's signed c you know like, you gotta, little things like that you like you you can't you can't like pay you got to really pay attention like that's, that's, that's what i'm saying movie. like that's what i'm saying is like you start almost behind the eight ball if you're not familiar with the terminology at first even though it is english yeah. there is a certain like 1970s british sort of like feeling about but it's not feeling it is in terms of like the terminology they're using so you've got to be aware of it before you even jump into this movie because otherwise yeah. you're going to start kind of scratching your head I, I think i gotta fill in one more thing here and it's kind of funny we're talking about this these terms we're using like bowl and agent and dossier it's kind of worth noting that those were not in the lexicon of English language until this book came out. Like this book is where we get the term mole. 
<laughs> oh, really? I mean, I think yeah. that's kind of crazy. They're kind of cool to think about. Like, that's that's wild. That was the book and like the series that people looked at as like it really took this genre from not that there's anything wrong with Ian Fleming and James Bond, love it. That took it from being like pulp novels to like actual literature. Yeah. The themes, like I don't know, I don't want to get into it too deep, but like I thought, like you, you said you kind of had trouble, but were y'all able to pick up on like some of the symbolism, like? When, when George is in the car with uh, Mendel, the driver, and Peter, and they get picked up, the they got the and, like, and the bees buzzing around in the car, and Peter's just trying to like smash it with a newspaper. Right. And George slowly rolls down the window and lets the bee out. Like, there's a lot of you know, foreshadowing there that like, George is going to lead someone into like, a trap, but also yeah. like, his management. He's very subtle. They're just like, smack the mole, smack the mole, smack the mole, but then one keeps popping up. It's like, lead the horse to water you know and he yeah just, i love that i just That's thought that cute. was really cool like but that might be something only i'm picking up on because i'm so familiar with you know the book and like the material well you gotta watch it like it's a film and not like it's yeah. a movie you Absolutely. know like there's gonna be some themes and some symbolism like you're gonna have to like try to pick up on it's not gonna be yeah you know, no like i think i think that's sort of like he answered sort of the question i asked earlier in terms of like you're allowed to, like when you've read the book and seen it before you're allowed to almost <laughs> look into a Deep, deeper perspective when you watch it again you know what's going to happen so you're sort of like oh what's the significance of this kind of thing i did I, like i did pick up on like that was a like sort of an interesting scene i didn't really maybe at the time think what was going on with that but i kind of knew that there was a reason for it but like i said i think i kind of do yeah. that with a lot of things but my brain doesn't work in terms of putting it together immediately uh go ahead Preston. what were you gonna talk about no i was just when um uh, but i was talking about that scene with the fly in the car I, I i obviously did not put any of that symbolism together <laughs> but uh yeah I, I just i was just going to mention how aesthetically interesting like that particular scene was like from the from behind the car it almost yeah. looked like it was from a film in like the 70s or 60s it was so you know, it's very noirish in terms of definitely was a green screen and they were just in this car absolutely right. but whether that was intentional or not driving like this you know yeah this cobblestone and just bouncing around it was kind of like you even said pulp fiction earlier uh joe but like that's like it kind of reminded me of those taxi cab scenes in pulp fiction where you could almost it's it's almost intentional in terms of how it like it looks that like it's not necessarily real like it almost drives your focus into like into the car rather than like outside exactly yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, it is sort of a weird thing, like in terms of I, I really almost felt like they didn't try to make it look like they were actually in the car, like they really wanted you to focus on what was going on within the car. So they like they didn't make it look like it was very, very real, even though they well, could. No, yeah. And back in the 70s, that, that <clears throat> I think they were in a Porsche and so that would have <laughs> been very, very loud. So like you know, it wouldn't have worked with the audio, and you wouldn't be able to hear you know Gary Oldman roll the window down when he lets oh, the yeah. bee out. You know, like that. just great stuff like that. You wouldn't be able to get if it was that you were actually driving down the road. Well, so, I'm not even I'm not even talking necessarily about that, Joe. I'm I'm sort of almost talking like they could probably make it look a lot more real, but they made it almost two dimensional in the sense of like they were in front of a screen and there was they were just right. filming the car in front of it, and I, so it like it did just it just felt like what. They, whether they wanted to drive your attention to the the bee or the fly, whatever it was, maybe that's my own sort of interpretation. Or uh, they wanted like, 
I, I really don't know. Like they just wanted to make it feel like it was a 1970s period piece at the same time. Maybe it's a little mix of both. I really don't know. Like, uh, I just don't recall that ever happening again in the film. Anything like that. Yeah, I don't know. That's I, I missed it. Like, I just, it was an interesting decision and it was definitely one that, like, for me, I mean, I noticed it right away. I was like, this is, well, why are they doing this? Yeah, no, visually when it was Willem definitely different. And picks up Gary Oldman in, um, I can't remember what car they're in, but it, it was it was kind of the same thing, kind of same deal with Benedict Cumberbatch in the driver's seat, and then you had Oldman in the opposite. Oh yeah, but it was from the, front, the back. from the front, right? Yep. Yeah, that was a great scene. I, I think one of the kind of to your point there, Preston, you may not have picked up on that. I thought was just an excellent scene is when uh, Jim Prudeau, Mark Strong has the kids out in the in the field driving mm-hmm. the car, and he looks over and see he sees Smiley, but he's got Bill, he's got Jumbo, he's like do you notice anything odd, you know? And that man sitting here goes, that man hasn't looked over here once and there's 20 (laughs) kids driving a car empty field. That's suspicious. You know, why doesn't he like like us? That's old spycraft. Like he's teaching. And that's one of the things I'm going to get at is that I think the books do such an excellent job of describing like, because, you know, again, John LaCare had this experience of like spycraft how you were trained to watch people, how you, what you were trained to look for, what you were trained not to do. And like you saw examples of this throughout the movie that maybe if you haven't, weren't familiar with the subject material or like, you know, it kind of espionage and spycraft, you probably didn't catch, right? Yeah, yeah. It seems to me just as like a normal human being, not, not a non-spy, <laughs> non-spy person, uh, that this was a very like bare bone, honest, depiction of like spies yeah. during that time and and i, I assume that's kind of how uh look right writes the writes the those novels i mean i feel like he he's does he i mean would you agree well, with like per, a very realistic a very, that, very much yeah. so. like everyone everyone's very human in depth yeah. just want to state that Preston is the only non-spy everyone else we don't yeah. know if we're spies they're, they're or not. all they're all ambitious they're all <laughs> you know, they're all they're all kind of shitty people you know, like, and that's, I think that's, you know, I, I think we're going to talk about this later, but, you know, to the, it's very not like James Bond, right? It's not glamorous. It's a lot yeah, of, not at all. you know, high English and they're, you know, George Smiley is essentially like in the books, like he's an academic. He, he, he's into high German literature. Like he would be, that was his cover for years was living in Germany as a, as a like history PhD professor. You know, I was, he, I was like, telling this to Budge earlier. I was like, he's more of a more of a Poirot than a, a Poirot <laughs> than a than a uh, Bond. Well, no, he's sort of like a, a, a Sherlock Holmes without sort of like the interesting idiosyncrasies in some sense. Like he's without smart the deathly like, cocaine habit. Yeah, without like uh, yeah, exactly. That's what I was getting at in terms of the idiosyncrasies. But like in terms of yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah like the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, of course. All right. So do y'all, I feel like we've kind of like just, we could go another hour or two talking about this movie in some yeah. sense because there's so much to talk about, but uh, we're going to wheel just it up because we, we tried, we do try to keep this show like at a reasonable length, whatever. I feel like we got almost at an hour, but what we're going <laughs> to do is now is we're going to introduce our friend uh, Budge to the wheel here and we're going to read the categories. Let me go. All right. So number one is I spy. Number two, Living in a van down by the river. We already kind of talked about that, but we can talk about it more. Number three, pick your actor. Number four, let's Americanize it. Number five, British invasion. 
Six, a little bit of trivia. Seven, whammy. Eight, in the heat of the night. Nine, always do respin. Number 10, figure it out. So here we go. Budge, you're the guest. You can get the first question. The wheel is spinning. Six. Oh my goodness! A little bit of trivia. This is uh, this was more of a uh, Matthew Scott uh, pick, whatever. But all right. So which of these men don't appear in the Harry Potter franchise? Because uh, Harry Potter franchise famously <laughs> famously had so many British actors in there, whatever. It was almost just like a who's who of British actors. So well, we're going to give you a list of people, Budge, and you tell me which one didn't appear in them. So Gary Oldman, obviously. I think Sharon Hines uh, was in this film. Toby Jones or John Hurt, who played Control. So Sharon Hines played the soldier. Toby Jones played Tinker. Or do you want their actual character names? I, I wrote down Tinker. Uh, uh, Toby Jones was Percy. Sharon Hines was Froy Bland. So, Budge, who didn't appear in the Harry Potter franchise? I think I know Let's see. I, I mean, I'm obviously Sirius Black is here. Um, mm -hmm. Do we need a time limit now? Or? Uh, let's say. Uh, <laughs> okay. So wait, Toby Jones, Sirius Hines, Gary Oldman. It was that just four. And then uh, John Hurt, who was Control. Uh, Toby Jones. Oh, Toby Jones actually was Dobby, but that you actually got the, in sort of the right answer. It was a trick question. So Gary Oldman was Sirius Black. Uh, Siren Hines was uh, Aberforth Dumbledore, so he had a brief appearance in it. Oh, okay. Toby Jones was just a voice, like, so you got it right in a sense, Budge. He was actually, though, Dobby the house elf, and then John Hurt was, uh, what's his name, the, the wand guy, I forgot. Ollivander. Ollivander, yeah, so I, you actually I, did well. It was, a, it was a trick question in a way, can so. I a, can I do a reverse trivia for you? Do y'all know what John Hurt's other famous role is? Merlin? No, he was in the movie Alien by Ridley Scott. He's the guy where the the alien pops out of his stomach. No shit. Yeah. Which well, he has to have other famous roles because I read that he like got like a he got knighted or something like that. Yeah, he's very famous. He was in Merlin. I think that was like the TV show. Was he wasn't like he wasn't like no no he wasn't the guy from um, Count of Monte Crisco. That was the other guy who played Dumbledore and then died or whatever. All right, uh, so we're gonna move on. Vendetta. We're gonna, we're gonna wheel you out. Okay. Right, I thought you would remember the Dobby Toby Jones reference from one of our podcasts. I know we had a previous conversation. I'm foolish. All right. So this one's kind of for all of you. It doesn't matter. So it's British Invasion. We kind of touched on this a little bit in terms of the music, but so this story is set in like the golden era of British rock, like early 1970s, uh, minus Oasis, who is a my personal favorite. But do you wish? There was at least some homage to the music, like sort of like the Who, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles or whatever. And if so, what band would have like fit the mood and like what scene would you put a song in? Like, because like I said, this was like during like the classic age of like movies of the best music we all grew up with. I'm surprised we didn't hear any of it. Anyone want to jump uh, in? I'll, I'll jump in. A, a good one. Who, who was just speaking? Go ahead, Preston. <laughs> um, well, to go with kind of like the vibe and the general like ambiance of the film, I think something like a uh, um, Zeppelin No Quarter, I think would be really cool. I think would go well with, with this film. 
is that what we're asking here? Like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, can you spit like a specific character or a thing? Like, in terms of like, do you do you see a certain character sort of like displaying a certain mood or something like that? Or you don't have to get too specific. I was just curious. I've got like one just sort of idea in mind. Not that you have to have my idea. I was just sort of like, I kind of well, like. Let's let's hear it. And I think Budge had one or twenty on. Uh, no, so so sort of like I feel like you know we talked about this earlier in terms of Jim, the guy who was sort of like hiding out in terms of was killed, the sort of like hiding back out. He's living in his trailer, or whatever. I just sort of felt like there was like he definitely was drinking a lot. I felt like there could have been some really like at least. Like he was at least listening to the radio, maybe of like some type of song, like like a Led Zeppelin Who song. I didn't have anything in mind, but in terms of like he was just you know drinking alone in his trailer, I feel like something loud could have been going on. Like that's that's sort of all I was getting at, and then they could have like drowned out as like the scene sort of moved on. I thought they could have just done something, maybe like a little homage to sort of the music that was going on at the time. That's all I was getting at. Joe, uh, I, I I did I thought about this too, and I actually kind of thought about it when I was watching. There's that scene um, when Peter Gwillem goes to get the um, the, the logbook, and M Mendel, like the 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 guy who's helping, is calling, and he's acting like he's at the repair, and they're actually at the auto repair shop, and he's like, "Mr. Gwillem, your car has a broken gearbox," and they use that as kind of a distraction, and they play the song, "Mr. Wu." Oh, Mr. Wu. Uh, yeah, you yeah. thought you could have you could have done something like a Beatles song there because like yeah. This is probably the most Siren Hines spoke on the way out. He's singing Dr. Mr. Wu. Like, yeah, it's kind of got that, that whimsy, uh, yeah. like, uh, for the benefit of Mr. Kite kind of deal. Yeah. You've got to do like a poppy Beatles song there. Yeah. Maybe they didn't have the budget for it. <laughs> probably spin it on the cast. Good God. Yeah, oh, exactly. Joe, did you have, did you have a song in mind or do you want to spin it again? Uh, I am not a particular song, but I, I think I would have gone something like, um, you know, Eric Clapton, like a, uh, uh, you know, someone like, um, God, what, what's that super band he was with? Um, cream. Cream. Not Cream. Um, Yardbirds, Cream. Yardbirds. With, Lines, with uh, Dwayne Allman. Derek and the Dominoes. Like a Derek and the Dominoes, like the Dominoes song. Yeah, Which like a Bell Bottom Blues or well, something. Like, would, they didn't quite cross over with the time, I don't think, though. But that was like, yeah. Was that, that late 70s? Been late, yeah, that would have been late 70s. Late this, is, this is 1973, right? I think that could early Maybe like if you were getting like a really grungy London scene, like a fucking Who song, you know, like uh, yeah, it well, I, I we only like, fooled again or something. I, feel I like, really like in my no quarter pick here. Just want to say, I, yeah, I do no want to say like really well, cool. in terms of what uh, Joe was talking about though, like it, it almost was surprising in terms of like this was like this constant building conflict or whatever. But the conflict almost never happened except some dude got shot in some ways, right? Does that make sense? Like, it was, like, this constantly building up to something. Like, we never saw someone really, like, yell or get, like, we actually did see a fistfight or whatever. But it almost felt like something bigger was going to happen. But, again, this this movie was almost just, like, a expression of subtlety in some ways. So, like, yeah. it, it was just, it takes one of the eyeballs. yeah, yeah, you're not getting some Guy Ritchie explosion at the end. You're kind of getting, like, something a little bit different. All right, we're going to spin it one more time, and then we're going to give our ratings for the movie. <laughs> All right, so number one, I Spy. Using your knowledge of history, pick a time in history to be a part of the CIA, and what type of assignment and where do you want to, like, be most? So, like, what 
in like we all oh, I'm not sure, but Joe, uh, Joe, I feel like you would like to answer this and maybe Wilson would yeah. not Wilson uh, uh, like would too, but go ahead, Joe. Did it put me in the late fifties on <laughs> the uh, south shore of Cuba in the Bay of Pigs <laughs> with uh about forty armed rebels with uh reliable ammunition and some AK forty sevens and we could take over Cuba quickly. <laughs> What about you, Bud? Uh, I think I, I'd prefer to be like on the on like a European coast, like and be like in Monaco or like even in like if you even go as far over to like on the Mediterranean, like Beirut in like the mid the mid sixties, kind of like like Stuart Copeland's dad was, just like Paris living of the there, East, like a, an oil exec with a bunch of money, and like everybody over there is a spy. Everybody's cheat, you know. <laughs> A lot of partying, a lot of hooking up. Like, I, I feel like know. Budge has almost the complexion to almost pull off any sort of European country in some ways. Like you're sort of almost ambiguous in that way. <laughs> Budge definitely knows his way around a harem. <laughs> like you could be Spanish, you could be mildly Middle Eastern. Go ahead, Preston. Do you have something? Like I'm stuck. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'd, I would like to be around in the, during the Vietnam War or in like um, Cambodia with Pol Pot so I can like sabotage some of the, <laughs> some of the effort. Do y'all think y'all could be a spy? Pokey. Do you think you could be a spy? Or like, let's, let's just talk about that before we finish up. Cause that's one question I really wanted to ask in terms of like, do you think you could actually sort of do the devil agent kind of thing? I personally don't, I think I could go, I, I think the most I could do is be an undercover cop. I don't think I could do the spy stuff. I think that'd be too stressful, but I do think I could undercover cop. But what do you yeah. think? You know, I didn't think I could. I think the problem would be that if I speak in foreign languages, I speak too slowly. So the minute I open my mouth, I'd be like caught. You but think you'd be talking about the Montgomery train, Rodeo yeah. and to just give your, yeah, give your like whole that. spill away? <laughs> I, had a, I had a friend in law school from Turkey that, that would tell me, like, you know, if you had a beard, you you could be, you know, but the minute you'd open your mouth, they'd kill you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it would be Budge Huskaloo from uh, Istanbul. <laughs> Budge would start talking about Dixie Kratz and then like his whole his whole like spiel would be up. Yeah. Go ahead. I'd be tough. I would <laughs> uh Joe, do you think you could spy? Do you think you'd like do a double agent type thing? And who and what country do you think you could do it for the best? Uh well, I think I I think I could pass as some Swiss diplomat that would be above <laughs> suspicion that could go around to all the countries, you know, and pass messages along, you know, that kind of deal. Yeah. Be your man and burn that kind of that kind yeah, of guy. There's, there's a great scene in the in the books, and I think it's in the miniseries too. And it's uh, Jim Prado isn't shot in the in a courtyard; he's shot in the woods. But he when he goes over the Czech border, his cover as a Paris is a like a French reporter, and he speaks really good Czech. And so he's in the bar, and and they're kind of talking to him, and he's he could see that like you know the KGB and and the you know the Secret Service are following. So he's having a conversation. He's talking about like oh. The French can't brew beer like this. I always think about you. I'm like, oh, Joe would love that line. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Man. In Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic now, beer is cheaper than water. Like a liter of beer is about 59 euro cents. And a, and a liter of water is 75 cents. Living the dream. All right. So what we're going to do now is we're going to rate the film like we did last episode. We're going to do it on acting. We're going to do it on was the other one um dialogue we're gonna do it on plot we're gonna do it on music so we're gonna start with acting this movie like we already talked about before contains so many heavyweights in terms of british male actors or whatever so go ahead out of 25 by the way give your score for the acting we're gonna start with uh budge here 
we'll go with Joe and then Preston and me. Go ahead, bud. So acting. 25 for each category. Out of 25 for each category. Out of 25, and then we'll do the total. 20, whatever, yeah. I, give, I give the acting 25. Oh, I think it's top notch. It's just top notch. Joe, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, whole quarter on that, man. 25. Okay. Preston? Uh, I'm 24. I don't want to go full full perfect here. but Yeah, I don't want to go full budge either because – I mean, uh, it, it is, <laughs> it's hard to, to deny all the great acting in this. I mean, maybe, maybe – I know it was kind of a man's world, but maybe a, another female actress or something like you that. You little prick, Esterhouse. Yeah, I'm not going to go full budge. All right. <laughs> I went 24 as well. All right, so plot, plot, budge, go for it. Uh, I think this is where you you knock off a couple of points. I think that because I think that the book and the and the series or whatever you got to go. But I guess I will probably knock off five here, so I'll give it a twenty for for like it's just it's like you said it's hard for me to give you know I would like to give it a higher score, but I can understand in this conversation I'm learning that there were so many things that y'all didn't quite gather due to the lack of background details. All right, Joe, plot. Yeah, I'm gonna go nineteen two for plot. Um, I didn't really get the urgency that I wanted just because they wanted ongoing access to them. Anyway, just it, it, they could have beefed up the tension a little bit for me. All right. Go ahead, Preston. Yeah. I had a 19 as well. I mean, some of this I feel like is my own fault for not really being ready for the intricacies, but I think also just, you know, if you're going in and having not seen this film um, or not knowing really anything about it, it can be a little, uh, taxing all right yeah i'm gonna give it a 20 like I, i've got the same sort of complaints everyone else does in terms of i think the plot actually works but i feel like they needed to have some disclaimer before you watch so that you need to be sort of mentally prepared and also not mentally prepared but historically prepared for it um <laughs> all right but the dialogue which isn't the same as plot but it's just sort of the authenticity of how they spoke what do you think about it I think I got to go 25 on this. I think there are just so many lines that I, I, op- I laughed so hard and I thought were great. Like when Control is putting the, you know, he's yelling at Percy because the punch isn't strong enough at the Christmas. <laughs> Calvinistic penny pinching scum. I'm not drunk all this piss. That's Can great. you not follow an order? And, and honestly, too, where I thought this did better than the book or the movie is I, I, I really enjoyed the relationship with Mark Strong had kind of with the students and Bill. And, and when he's first talking to Bill Roach, yeah. he's like, Bill, the unpaid Bill. Kind of reminded me of okay. like dry English wit that you kind of also got like growing up like my grandparents would kind of like make it kind of a joke like that. Like, oh, my name's Bill. Oh, the unpaid Bill. Like, I guess, <laughs> like, saying that That's watching the unit. Being just really authentic, you know. And, yeah. and so in that sense, I, I, I go, I got to go full, full bunch there. All right, what what do you think, Joe? As an Englishman, what do you give it? Yeah, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a 24. Um, it's hard to beat it. <laughs> Not a perfect English score, but go ahead, Preston. Uh, uh, I mean, I gave it a 22. <laughs> I kind I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I had to look up a lot of words. <laughs> um, I, I, Budge, I'm glad you brought up that relationship between Mark uh Strong's character and the little kid I did I did enjoy like just that relationship and their back and forth I thought it brought some like levity and charm to the film and, and when it was otherwise like pretty dark uh but yeah 22 all right I'm gonna I'm gonna meet right right at 22 as well like I said I, I feel like it was authentic but at the same time I'm probably not educated enough to know how authentic it was it got me lost but at the same time if it got me lost it probably means it 
I, I should have known better in some sense. So we're going to wrap it up with the music and then we're going to, um, you know, finish the pot. All right. So budge the music. what do you think about this music? Uh, I think I'm going to give it a 20. I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it was a great score. I thought it like did well with the tension, but yeah. I th- I honestly, and, and I got to say where I knock it is when I was talking about Mr. Wu, I thought, like you said, they could have inserted some other like top more, a little more topical music and yeah. a bit just, more- just mix it up a little bit. Right. Yeah. I got to say the end with La Mer is Yeah, no, I, I give it high points for that. Yeah, absolutely. So good uh, with Julio Iglesias. I, as I've said, Budge has, has attempted to serenade <laughs> with that and succeeded, you know, with a, with a 33.33% repeating. Budge uh, trying to plug his uh, karaoke <laughs> nights, get a bigger audience. All right, Joe, go for it. I'm going to go uh, 21, and I'm going to give it a couple notches up for the Sammy Davis Jr. number, uh, second best secret agent in the whole world. I love that song. Uh, kind of reminds me of the Oceans uh, movies a little bit, um, and it gave it that, you know, we're on the west side. You know, In a way, this was a, sort of like, in terms of like the all-star cast collaborating together, it was almost like an Oceans 11 type thing, but yeah, British, British style. Yeah, almost a, a, like way <laughs> more complicated. Character. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Preston. Yeah, I gave it a 20 uh, for a lot of the reasons we spoke about. I think, you know, make, give us one or two uh, timely rock tunes from that era in Britain because it was such an iconic era. Um, I get how that might not that might not flow with just the general feel of the, the film. But, um, you know, all in all, I, the score was very appropriate, appropriate for uh, uh, what was going on. So. Yeah, well, I, I give it a 20, like, but at the same time, it's the yeah. same complaints I had. I really, like, I thought this, the way they, like, organized the score in terms of it did, like, keep your attention in terms of, like, it just almost felt like it was kept on leading and leading and leading. Like, you were almost, you felt like the music was telling you that we were getting close to figuring out some stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if that, like, it almost felt like it was, like, like it started off sort of simple and that kind of got a little bit progressively different. Like we're getting to the end kind of thing. I, I, I don't know how to explain it intelligently, but I did feel like it was sort of like a very leading score in terms of like leading you on in terms of we're, we're getting to the final solution. Oh shit. That's a terrible way to say it. We're getting to figure out what was going on. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say final solution. That's awful. Uh, <laughs> All right, but uh, that's going to be the end here. Demonetized. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Twitter left is going to start playing this clip over and over and over again. And honestly, we probably get more attention. But anyway, so that's going to be into this Tinker Taylor, Taylor Soldier Spy. We really want to thank our really good friend Budge Husky. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say you got open invitation for any movie you want to do in the future. But uh, the next movie Anytime. since. Uh, Rod Budman uh, is not with us tonight. He was uh, busy doing stuff, but uh, we're doing Willow next. Rod sent me a text. Willow is next. So uh, we're going to sign yeah, out with that. I'd like, to, I'd like to thank y'all for having me on again. And, uh, I, you know, as, and I'm a fan, so I like to listen. So it just just throw an idea out for you guys to do in the future. I, like I said, I, I recently rewatched Alien and Aliens. And I think I was thinking to myself, man, this would be really good for y'all's podcast. I uh, love that. I love that too. So we're gonna do Willow, and then who's who's after who's after Rod? I guess Preston's gonna be after Rod. So Preston can maybe do that, and then maybe we can add uh, we can get Budge back on to a five man tag team session on Alien. 
Um, all right, though, but that's going to be it. We're going to wrap it up with that. Preston, do you have anything to say? Bud, do you have anything to say? Do you want to wrap it? Uh, do you want to give one last plug, Bud? Do you want to? Oh yeah. So again, you know, we'll drop the link. But if, if you if you feel uh, feel the need to spread some love, spread the dimes. Um, we've got a we're, we're trying to build a memorial for John Lewis in his hometown in Alabama, and uh, we appreciate any help. So thanks again. Nice. All right. That's going to be it. We're going to wrap it up. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening. Keep Peace. on budding. Keep on budding. Oh, well, <laughs> <I'm moving. laughs> Merci pour mes musiciens qui viennent toujours avec moi pour tout le monde, c'est Tony la guitare, 
Sí, Agustín, la batería. Sí, Vicente, la guitarra basse. Y por nuestro director, con el que yo compongo casi todos mis sonsos, es Rafael Ferro, que es la que me gusta.